I think that the answers are going to come out of rural hospitals. Rural areas are nimble and innovative. And what is the the old adage? You know, when you don't have those resources, that when you that's when you do get creative. That's when you are the most innovative. This is Can Do, a podcast that explores the essential lessons for business success. As the world continues to feel the effects of the coronavirus, uncertainty and unpredictability have become the status quo. It has never been more important to learn from entrepreneurs and industry experts about their experiences and to hear their advice. Whether you're a business owner, entrepreneur, or your career is affected by the current economic climate, lessons shared by our guests can help you make informed decisions about your future. I'm your host, Arnie Sherman. The COVID-19 pandemic has disproportionately affected rural America. 60 million Americans and approximately 44% of Montanans live in areas with less access to health care, resulting in a myriad of chronic health issues. Native American communities have also been particularly hard hit, highlighting a long history of health care inequality. Counties dependent on manufacturing and farming across the country have seen their economic well-being take a hit because of worker shortages and other factors associated with COVID-19. We have all seen the impact of this on grocery shelves and with lengthy shipping delays. Today on Can Do, we are joined by Angelina Salazar, CEO of Western Healthcare Alliance, and Chris Hopkins, CEO of Montana Health Network. We will discuss economic well-being in rural America, equality in health, and education challenges in those areas. We will find out if telemedicine is a viable tool for improving the situation, and what challenges the healthcare industry faces in attracting and maintaining primary physicians and nursing care in these more isolated communities. Support for this episode of Can Do is provided by the Dennis and Phyllis Washington Foundation, dedicated to investing in people to improve the quality of their lives. Additional support comes from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. And Parsons, Bailey, and Latimer, a regional law firm with national experience representing the interests of Montana entrepreneurs and businesses. More information at ParsonsBailey.com. Angelina, Chris, welcome to the show today. It's a pleasure to have you. For our listeners, Angelina is joining us from Grand Junction, Colorado, and Chris is joining us from Miles City, Montana. Angelina, tell me a little about your background on the focus of the Western Healthcare Alliance. Thank you, Arnie. So the Western Healthcare Alliance is a network of 32 hospitals, rural hospitals in Colorado and Eastern Utah, started in 1989. And the mission is to collaborate to improve rural healthcare through collaboration. And that's what we do every day is collaborate to ensure these rural communities have access to care that's local and that these rural hospitals can maintain their independence and their local control of healthcare. So that's WHA in a nutshell. And what challenges have you been facing in in this lingering COVID pandemic environment that are exceptional, that are more than what you usually deal with? (laughs) More than what we usually deal with. Yeah, that's, I would say, and I'm sure Chris would agree with me, it's almost like the challenges that we had prior to COVID are intensified. I mean, we always had a shortage of, um, of staff, of primary care, um, a shortage of affordable housing. I mean, in Colorado, we have a lot of resort communities that are uber expensive 
Um, the surgeons can afford the housing, but the housekeepers not so much. So that just, it, it is, it's just, it's as if the, um, the challenges that we, that we were facing and trying to solve prior to COVID were just more in our face more than ever before. And, and what's your background? My background, so I am a, a recovering middle school teacher. And then I, uh, so I have two degrees actually. I, I, I spent a lot of time in higher ed. I've taught every grade imaginable um, and taught at a Regis University. My first master's is in curriculum instruction, um, language acquisition. My second master's degree is transpersonal psychology and healthcare ultimately found me. And I'm so glad it did because that wasn't my original trajectory. But, so that, but that's my background, languages and psychology. Chris, tell me a little bit about the scope of work of the Montana Rural Health Initiative. So, so it's Montana Health Network uh, is the name of the organization. And um, so we're based in Miles City, Montana, and we are owned by 17 Eastern Montana hospitals or healthcare facilities. And um, essentially kind of similar to what Angelina discussed, it's they came together as a group back in the 80s, 1987 is when we were established. And uh, it was really to share ideas, to see where hospitals could collaborate. Um, primarily, it, it began looking at kind of overhead expenses like uh, uh, benefits uh, for their employees or um, uh, coverage, insurance coverage for their employees, uh, but quickly developed into a need for staffing and uh, quickly also a, a need for education and uh, development. And so we have, we have a... Um, uh, just the charge always to to improve the strengthen our really the charge is to strengthen our rural critical access hospitals and rural healthcare facilities so that they can in turn strengthen their their communities. And what's your background, Chris? Uh, my background is uh, similar to uh, Angelina. I came out of a background in in somewhat in the humanities uh, with an undergraduate degree in history, but then I have a master's degree in business uh, from University of Utah. So for both of you, you know, frontline healthcare workers have been grappling with the pandemic for more than a year and a half. What's the overall situation now? Um, and uh, I want to uh, have Chris drill down on Montana in particular. Thanks, Arnie. Yeah, I would say um, in terms of frontline workers, the, the challenge right now for um, rural areas in Colorado and eastern Utah is around the vaccination. Um, we've had in some of our hospitals, um, um, uh, mass exodus, if you will, of healthcare providers, workers, frontline staff that refuse to get the vaccine for you know, an assortment of reasons, but it's really put um, just more of a strain on our rural hospitals to be able to provide care. And because of the, uh, the vaccine, the um, those that don't want to get the vaccine, not only the frontline healthcare workers or um, various staff within the, the walls of the hospital, but the communities themselves. So you have this situation where you have a rural community where maybe vaccination rate is 40%. So that hospital, ha their beds are filled with COVID patients, but then you don't have enough staff to be able to take care of the patients because they're either sick too with COVID or they're not vaccinated. And we had in the state of Colorado, a vaccine mandate for all employers that had 100 or more um, employees and all healthcare had to get vaccinated in the state of Colorado. 
And that uh, mandate, and I'm sure everybody on this call has has read the news. You, you've, it's just, it's been incredibly hard um, to be able to provide that care when you don't have the staff. So I would say that that um, the vaccination itself has caused insult to injury, even more turmoil in an already very stressful time. Chris, what's the Montana situation like? Yeah, so so in Montana, the very much the vaccine mandate is is front of mind for everybody. I think everybody's waiting for the final ruling. As you know, Montana hasn't uh, Mo- Montana's um, uh, House bill is is in somewhat in opposition to the the federal mandate, and so um, the facilities are trying to establish kind of where they're sitting in that mix, um, and whether to follow state law, whether to follow federal law. Federal law, of course. Uh, most of the, well, all of the facilities that I work with accept dollars from Medicaid and Medicare. So they know for the most part that, you know, following the federal mandate is, is really their only choice. Uh, but it's how do they get there? Um, so, and they've been dealing with uh, uh, staffing shortages for a while. But a couple of things are happening right now is, is one, it's, you know, as mentioned, the fear of the mandate. Two is, is you know, low vaccination rates in the communities and the, the hospitals are full. They're trying to figure out, and again, I'm talking mostly our frontier small facilities, are trying to, to figure out where they can refer people to. And they, of course, then refer into Billings or they refer into Missoula, they refer into to bigger places. And as those hospitals fill up, then our, host, our small critical access hospitals are having to refer a far, as far away as Utah and Washington and, and really get, you know, that are really kind of seriously ill patients a, a bed. At the same time, as our, as our main tertiary care facilities fill up, they're moving patients back to the rurals because the rurals are able to accommodate some of those things and have bed space. So as Billings Clinic fills up, say, uh, then they move uh, patients to their surrounding communities to, to uh, you know, help them just kind of get the regular medical surgical care that they might need while they're busy handling kind of more intensive or, or COVID cases. And then all that's going on with a huge labor shortage. And so it's not just the vaccination mandate, but, but it's, you know, it really early on with the, with the pandemic, it's a little bit of an unknown and healthcare workers had to really take a, a gut check to say, do I want to work in this kind of an industry? Do I want to potentially bring this home to my family? Um, some have, have looked at that as an opportunity to um, just go home and be with their families. And so they've chosen different professions. Um, and so there's, there's a shortage there. Some of them have been attracted by uh, larger cities that are offering considerably more dollars uh, to work. And um, we hear often of Texas and, and New York and and kind of the, some of the exorbitant hourly rates. And those hourly rates trickle down and trickle back to Montana, where some of our facilities are having to pay hundreds of dollars per hour still for staff. And if you imagine a town like Culbertson, say, having to pay $150 an hour for, an, for a nurse, you know, traveling nurse just to keep people there and or uh, kind of get traveling staff support to help them through the pandemic. And then, and then you know, between those two, between people leaving to go just wonder, you know, not wanting to, I guess, bring COVID home into their own families, uh, then healthcare workers getting kind of um, recruited off to other higher paying areas. And then, of course, you have a, a, 
very much a dedicated group that very much love serving in their community and love the community that they're in and, and are working hard. But the stress on them uh, always having to deal with maybe somebody new to the facility is, is hard. So this whole thing sounds like a nightmare. Angelina, what could be done about it? Well, and I appreciate everything that Chris added. He added much more color than the the brief statement I made about the vaccine. So I appreciate that because we have a a similar thing happening. I think it's all over the country. It's not just Montana and Colorado. It's everywhere. Um, What Chris described, and this is probably not new to you, Arnie. Um, So what can be done about it? Well, I think that's where the silver lining is. Um, We're bait. I mean, the core of of what we do is all about collaborating which I don't want to speak for our urban counterparts, but I don't, from what I hear, there isn't as much collaboration as there is with, with, rural, with rural organizations. We know that for rural hospitals to continue to maintain their independence, survive, if you will, they, got, they have to work together. There's not a, do we want to? It's like, we have to. So that was already in place. There was already, WHA provides that venue for these hospitals to come together to be able to have these hard conversations and to figure out ways that they can they can work together. So they are. Um, to give you an example, around staffing, you know, one hospital might have a particular shortage in radiology, and the other hospital maybe it was CNAs. So instead of paying travelers or figuring out how they could maybe share um, and and pay a, a higher salary to those particular individuals versus an outside travel agency. Another thing that they're doing is they're, they're looking at these job descriptions, like the typical role of, of a nurse, for example. And instead of right away saying, oh, okay, well, we've got to just, we're going to lose money, but we've got to pay, like Chris said, 150 an hour. Instead, they're saying, well, wait a minute, what other roles do we have in our hospital that can take care of some of these basic duties that we know need to get done that doesn't necessarily have to be a nurse? Like, for example, an EMT. What about EMTs? So they're, they're rethinking job roles. Um, of course, telemedicine, telehealth has, has <clears throat> luckily, <laughs> I think, is another silver lining of, of COVID because before that, boy, it was hard to even get it at the forefront. And now it's just all of the hospitals are taking advantage of the funding that's out there for telemedicine, telehealth. Um, and I think another great thing that's happened in the last couple of years, at least in Colorado and Utah, is more organizations are coming together. So for example, WHA hosts a statewide call where all the rurals, whether you're part of WHA or not, um, and all the organizations that serve rural are on this one call. And we provide updates where they can all hear the same information versus trying to get, we're all inundated with information, let's face it. But it's one call that's concise where they get that information. They, they know where to go to for resources. Those, those resources are streamlined to really meet their needs. And there's a whole lot of sharing going on, Arnie. And I think that's what's, um, I think it's just a beautiful thing because really it's forcing healthcare to be more efficient also. Chris, is that experience being uh, replicated in Montana? Yeah, so both between Montana Health Network and the Montana Healthcare Association, Montana Hospital Association as well, uh, are all working on avenues on where uh, people can collaborate, whether it's supply chain uh, in in terms of, uh, you know, masks. And and early on, it was all about masks, right? Bringing masks in. Where can we get them? How do we... How do we bring them in and, and who has extras and who can share? And so a lot of that collaboration is already in place in Montana. Montana is a pretty, although we have a, a, a lot of uh, a lot of healthcare facilities, almost, you know, almost one per county. 
they're all very collaborative and they, they have avenues to meet together often. And, um, and, uh, and then on top of that, um, you know, then it's looking at labor and, and, you know, where, where can we get the labor? And that's always been, you know, kind of a, uh, a niche that, that, uh, either the network or again, other organizations have been, been, uh, able to fill the national guard has been called in. And of course, when they when they call the National Guard in, sometimes it, it's it's not necessarily clinical people or frontline healthcare workers that they're getting, but kind of they can backfill some of those things. In the meantime, they're all kind of furiously planning forward of you know what are our next steps, and 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 to Angelina's point exactly, a lot of job redesign. You know what what can we what can we level a CNA to do that that maybe they haven't done before, or, and you know where where do we you know, kind of keep the valuable nursing time and where do we keep the valuable provider time so we're not burning them out. Um, and then, of course, telehealth is helpful. But um, again, as, as uh, you know, there are broadband issues across Montana, and I think everybody's been working on that. There's a lot of funding on that. Uh, and you may want to talk about that a little bit more in depth. But, um, you know, CMS opened up its regulations to allow you know, small facilities to have that telemed service and to be able to bill for that that tele telemed service, which uh, hasn't existed. Um, facilities have gone through and kind of identified what are the things that we are allowed to do during this pandemic that should stay, and one of the th- what are the what are the things that that uh, from a regulatory standpoint, um, you know, need to go back to normal when once this pandemic is over. Well, you mentioned a very good point, Chris, about tele- telemedicine and how it takes root. Uh, you know, Angelina's mentioned it. Uh, it lends itself tremendously to things like radiology. But if you don't have broadband access, it, what, what good is it, right? If you, if you can't send the, the digital images quickly and, and clearly, um, it, it becomes a, a, an exercise in futility. Correct. And, and, and a lot of it is, is really, you know, and there, across rural Montana, there's also, you know, huge transportation issues. And, and so, you know, it, when we think of telemed, often we're thinking from site to site, from small critical access hospital to larger tertiary care facility. And, and really, you know, do people have the ability even to get sometimes, you know, to the, to the critical access hospital that's, you know, 50 miles down a dirt road and it's, you know, gumbo and it's, it's muddy or, or, uh, or it's snow and ice covered. And, and so how do we really get that, you know, connection back to the, the home? Um, and, and so that in combination with what are called community health workers, which are designed to help kind of, you know, move, move forward in, in keeping people healthy, uh, should give some, give us some, some, hopefully some resources and some technological tools in the future. Native American communities have long struggled with their geographic proximity to healthcare and their isolation from other kinds of, of resources. What has happened in, in those communities during the COVID pandemic? You know, as we've seen in the, in the news, I mean, those, those tribal communities have been hit particularly hard. Um, and, and a lot of them have, you know, it, it's, it's, it's based around, you know, information and access and, and, um, yeah, we have you know tribal health organizations throughout the state. We have federally qualified health centers that serve tribal locations. Um, but again, it's it's getting people to where they need to be so that they can they can receive the treatment that they need. Um, and and so the you know and those resources just aren't, often aren't there. And, and so it's it's you know part of its logistics really of getting people from point A to point B to be able to to provide that care. 
I'm speaking with Angelina Salazar, Chief Executive Officer of Western Healthcare Alliance, and Chris Hopkins, Chief Executive Officer of Montana Health Network. Support for this episode of Can Do is provided by Montana RailLink, committed to safely delivering transportation solutions to their customers and partners. Additional support comes from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. And Parsons, Bailey, and Latimer, a regional law firm with national experience representing the interests of Montana entrepreneurs and businesses. More information at ParsonsBailey.com. There is a preoccupation, and rightfully so, with frontline healthcare workers and the effect that COVID-19 has had on them. But there are a lot of other workers within the healthcare system that have been impacted by the pandemic. Can you speak to that a little bit, Angelina? Yes, and I, what an important question. Um, absolutely, everybody's been affected. One thing that, that we've noticed, and Chris, I'm, I don't know if this is in Montana, but we have a, gosh, such a high turnover in administrators and CEOs. Um, it was high before COVID and it continues to be even higher. I've had, I think in, in the last five years, in, of the 32 members we have, I think there's a handful of the original, of those CEOs that were here five years ago. So there's that. Um, providers, I mean, everybody's tired. And we keep using this word burnout. And so there's lots of different efforts, initiatives out there to try and, and confront burnout. But I have a, a colleague at the Colorado Hospital Association, Vice President of Hospitals and Health Strategy, Benjamin Anderson, who, who said it so well, because he's a former CEO in a small rural area in Kansas. And he said, it doesn't, there's not enough meditation or uh, you know, massages or lunches that are gonna get, to get rid of this problem. It doesn't matter. And, and blaming people for not being able to manage their stress is the worst thing that you can do for a very tired provider or administrator. And um, we said it, but that's what we keep doing. We keep thinking, oh, well, you, okay, stress management. Well, if you just meditate or you, or you spend, or go for a walk or spend more time doing your hobbies and, and, and that's not the answer. And really, I think what COVID has revealed to all of us is that we have a system issue. We have a, it's much bigger then, then the then COVID just kind of sh- shone the the flashlight on it, right? Like they were providers were already, um, health, especially in rural healthcare, wearing twenty different hats. So um, it's a really good question that I know our network is starting to look at more, much more. Like we can't change the system overnight, but we can definitely identify why is it that there's this expectation in medical school that you've got to you've got to basically kill yourself. Um, to, to demonstrate that you, could, that you can do this work. So, Chris, I'm sure you have more to add there, but there's my two cents on burnout. Yeah, and, and, and healthcare as an industry as a whole is, is, seems to be constantly changing. We're in the, we're in the middle of, of, you know, in, in a certain sense, revamping payment systems, right? So we know that uh, the current the current way we're paying for healthcare and the current way we're obtaining healthcare is unsustainable to to the American economy, and um, so 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 healthcare administrators are already kind of stressed out trying to figure out how we're going to take my facility from you know where we are now in in a fee for service structure to to a value based structure, and, and that upends really everything because it, it you know in a, in a not to say that it all ties back to payment but you have to be fiscally responsible to keep the lights on at the facility you serve. Then you throw a pandemic on top of that. 
Um, then you throw a labor shortage on top of that. And um, I'm sure there's a lot of healthcare administrators that are that are wondering now what what industry did I get into and and what you know why am I here and and, uh, and thankfully uh, they're very nobly and and carefully taking on their position and and doing the best they can for the communities that they serve um, and and then you have you know their administrative team which is generally a, a chief financial officer or a, a director of nursing and the director of nursing is probably working the floor as a floor nurse. Uh, you know, there's no time for strategy. It's, it's uh, you know, getting the care done that needs to be done now and getting the resources in that need to be done now. And so when you're in that kind of an environment, you can do that for a while. Uh, but then after a while, it really starts to, to, to wear on you as well. So frontline workers are getting, you know, getting hit the hardest, of course, and seeing the, the, the worst side of this pandemic. But then behind the scenes, they're just constantly constantly fighting for their folks and constantly working to to keep everything afloat and keeping it moving and 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 not being able to do enough and so they're they're questioning their own roles in in this healthcare environment. I'd like to switch gears just a little bit and talk about just the general populace. You got 60 million Americans that live in rural areas and they're responsible for a lot of the agricultural, you know, production in this country. There's a lot of manufacturing that goes on in rural America. You got to a workforce that's removed from the system that isn't working as well as it used to be working and the way it used to be working before covid had its problems to begin with so so what are the you know what are the challenges what are the specific things that can be done to uh, you know better engage the workforce educationally and then uh, you know pr- proactively so that uh, uh, they're not disproportionately hurt by all of this yeah, I mean, of course, the the, you know, how how do we end the pandemic is is what you're asking, and then how do we reevaluate, you know, uh, y- you know where we are after that, and how do we get things back to normal? And those are, the, you know, those those are big questions. There's there's definitely an undercurrent of of the best way to end that pandemic, and and you know, um, people have different thoughts, and so being divided isn't really getting us anywhere, uh, at, at you know, at the moment quite frankly, because, um, you know, you have the, the COVID and then maybe we respond to the COVID and then there's a Delta variant and, and you know, we're, we're kind of frustrated with that battle as well. And, and, and so, yeah, I, th- you, you're asking, Arnie, a, a, a very, very big question. But, but, you know, at the end of the day is, is how, do we get, how do we get past this? And, and honestly, what do we learn from it afterwards so that makes lives better. I mean, I I drove through I drove through Livingston just yesterday, and and you know uh, the McDonald's in Livingston was advertising starting wage at twenty dollars an hour. Um, you know, pre pandemic, that's that's more than CNAs are making, and so you know all that has to settle in somehow, and and um, and and get us there, and it's and. Yeah, people say throwing money at it, you know, you can recruit those workers back, but it's not that. There's 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 some big lifestyle changes that this country has to grapple with. Yeah, I would add that I think that the answers are going to come out of rural hospitals. Where rural areas are nimble and innovative, and what is the the old adage? You know, when you don't have those resources, that when you that's when you do get creative. That's when you are the most innovative. We have a, a program every year. We, we survey our, 
uh, administrative leaders, CEOs, CFOs, CNOs, HR directors to find out what are you seeing in your hospitals around leadership? What's happening? What, what kind of skills do you think are going to be necessary in the next few years? And then we build a curriculum around what they're saying they need. And of course, most recently it was, well, boy, we'd really like some, some uh, courses that, that address resiliency and, and courses that do address innovation. How do we teach our people to be innovative? What does that look like? Not just at the administrative level, but down at the front, and, you know, the front line, our housekeepers, how can they be innovative? Some other things that we've been talking about um, around the reimbursement piece, we have a company called the Community Care Alliance that our, our rural leaders are just this way. They're able to, they're able to f- f- foreshadow, come together and create solutions. And so we have a pop health company called Community Care Alliance that's addressing the reimbursement pieces and they're coming together and practicing how to keep people well. I mean, it's just, it's things that we know intuitively, but they're doing it and they're nimble so they can do it quicker, much more quickly than I think bigger systems can in urban areas. So again, I think that um, the answers are probably gonna come out of our rural regions of what the healthcare of the future is gonna look like. And um, I, I do tend to be I mean, my sister accuses me of being Mary Poppins in disguise. I do tend to see the glass half full, um, but, and then she'll tell me maybe the glass, I, there's just too much glass all, all around for me to be able to address at this point. But I, I think it's time. I think everybody would have to agree. We have to make some changes and COVID brought that to the void to the forefront. Well, I think you, you both made a good point about the you know, the need in rural areas because of lack of resources and, and other sorts of things uh, to be more nimble. And certainly the geographical distance to, you know, specialty health care and all sorts of things. The only way to mitigate that, it would seem to me, in the rural areas is in preventative education and training and, and working with employers on those issues. And how much of that um, is going to be stimulated now as a result of COVID? Or, and, and what kind of things could we look forward to in the future? I think that that was already in motion um, before the pandemic because of um, the Affordable Care Act, because of value-based care that Chris referenced earlier. So it's already it's already been put into motion. But now I think, at least in our organization, it's on, it's on speed we're like we're moving much more quickly than we were in the past um, to work with partners like payers. You know, before it seemed like um, our rural hospitals felt, for lack of a better word, picked on, and it was almost like the payers. It's like okay, we, there was no regard really for these rural areas. It was like you're going to do, you're going to pay this. This is how we're going to reimburse you, and we don't we don't really care. This is how it goes. And now suddenly these rural leaders are at the table. We're all, we're all having these conversations with payer partners about what this new environment's gonna look like. And um, that's exciting. I think that's, that's again, that's, that's what should take place. And I think payers also um, in the past have been kind of, for, from a rural perspective, kind of seen as that, um, I don't wanna say enemy, but it isn't like, ah, they're, they're against us. They're not working with us. And now that collaboration in that area is taking place as well. Chris, I don't know if that's happened in Montana, but it's definitely starting to happen here. Yeah, and, and I would say with the, the hospitals mostly that I, that I work with, and again, uh, being based in eastern Montana, is, is 
that the hospitals are the largest employers in the communities that they're that they're serving. And so they're looking at their own employees and how do they keep their own employees healthy. Um, they're, they're seeing projects that have come through on, on Medicare and helping keep uh, Medicare recipients happy. And um, now they're, they're focusing kind of their own employees and how do they keep them I shouldn't happy is happy and healthy, uh, healthy being the, the 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 better word there. But um, but yeah, how do we keep our own employees healthy? And then that trickles over to hopefully their you know their significant others within the community. And then that that's a good healthy step uh, that everybody's taking. And really, when we're talking value based care, I mean really we're we're talking about changing the way hospitals instead of getting reimbursed for sick care, they're getting reimbursed for keeping people healthy. And um, so, again, they're starting with their own employees, and that's, that's who they have the, the closest connection to, and, and that's who should be carrying their vision back in the community. Moving beyond COVID, we've talked a little bit about telemedicine, but are there any other new tools available or being developed to reach out into rural communities uh, to, to provide better access to health care or better services in the healthcare care arena? Well, I definitely think... Um... I mean, AI is here and uh, telehealth, telemedicine kind of have opened the doors or opened the windows to what's possible. A lot of our hospitals right now are talking about hospital at home. Um, How do we start removing these walls um, and rethinking what a hospital is and what its role is? So that's, those are initial conversations that are really exciting. I think also just the good old cell phone you know, everybody, everybody has one. And how does that become a bigger player in our, our rural community's health? Um, starting out with just basic things like reminders, we all get the reminders from our dentists, but taking that to a whole new level, people are already using wearables, and what have you, but how do we connect that more in the in uh, rural health care so that we can all be a part of that solution? I think we're going to see a lot more of these um, innovations in the next few years, for sure. Yeah, and I think with with bigger bigger organizations, um, uh, and maybe it's it's more urban, but you know, bigger organizations kind of tapping into the healthcare business. Um, you know, Amazon looking at healthcare, Walmart looking at healthcare. I mean, believe me, those those trickle down. Um, and and once you know something works at a you know an urban section, is how do, how do you move that now progressively further and further out into the the rural areas. And so those kinds of things are kind of coming, uh, and primarily they're coming because of the expense in healthcare has has made it such that it's an attractive, an attractive position for them. And so, um, yeah, it's gonna all those connective tools as broadband gets better, as our cell phones, or our smartphones get better, um, we're gonna have a lot of tools at our fingertips that we haven't had before. Last question. Let me just ask both of you this. If you could wave your magic wand and make one improvement now in your area of work, you know, that you have control of, what would you do? Angelina, what would you do? If you could do one one new thing, what would it be? One new thing? Yeah. Oh, gosh, Arnie, that's a really tough question. Um, okay, if I could do one thing, I wave my magic wand um, I think that, well, I, w- I would want, um, can I have two things, please? You can have two. The first thing would be um, to 
figure out this reimbursement piece that Chris talked, even though we're going that direction, it's still fee for service and it's really hurting our hospitals and rural hospitals, especially are closing all over the country as a result of this not being figured out. So I'd want that figured out overnight. And I think the uh, second thing would be around behavioral health and mental health. I mean, that's also, we didn't address that so much on this, on this call, but um, even though we've always known that mind body, well, we haven't always known. It's it's most recently been more in our face that mind body is real. We, our bodies and our minds are connected, and we're getting um, COVID also brought that to the forefront with everybody dealing with some sort of mental health issue. All of us, probably on this call, I I would like to solve that. In that, there were more tools and a reimbursement structure that made sense so that um, our citizens that are, there's still stigma attached, that we all kind of saw mental health like we would see going to the gym. Like it's just something that we all do every day because it's not just when you are in crisis. Um, that's what I would do. Yeah, wow, that's a, that's a, I'm, I'm glad you asked Angelina first. And then uh, even though you asked her first, I still have to think hard because I, I guess, you know, what I see with rural healthcare, uh, especially is that it's needed. Um, but I've never seen anything that's, that's questioned so much in terms of its expense. And, and so if there's a, if there's a, a reimbursement model where providers and caregivers, uh, feel valued, uh, and administrators don't have to fret about how to keep the lights on and allow allow rural rural residents to to have access to not i mean then we don't need a neurosurgeon in every county by any means but um but to allow residents to have you know access to the best primary care that they can have um without it being questioned all the time um, when people take a step forward, um, that that they're supported in that in that identification of these are the things that are going to help your community, and and that gets the the support of the community. Uh, that's what I'd like to see. So maybe it's a shift in in attitude or a shift in in uh, understanding. Angelina, Chris, this has been very interesting and informative, and 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 hopefully has given our listeners. Uh, a better insight into the challenges in rural America. Thank you both for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I appreciate your listening to Can Do, produced by Lena Beck and Beth Ann Austin in association with Montana Public Radio. For comments, recommendations for future guests, or general information, please go to mtpr.org. There you'll find previous guest contact information and content from all our shows. Listen next time when I'll talk with John Roy Price, savvy financial industry veteran and author of The Last Liberal Republican, an insider's perspective on the Nixon White House. I'm Arnie Sherman, wishing you good health and prosperity.